Spy Cops Info Podcast. A series on the secret undercover political police who spied on over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Hashtag SpyCopsPod. Episode 15. Activist media coverage with Carolyn. Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. I'm Tom Fowler and today I'm joined with... Carolyn, who's another cool participant. Like myself, you went to every hearing of the Undercover Policing Inquiry. Yeah, for our sins. For our sins, man. We have sat through every single... Yeah, I, so far. I don't want to like destroy your anonymity, but it was mostly you who was doing the tweets under the campaign opposing speech surveillance Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think the two of us sort of both took on this task of live tweeting what was going on, because we all know there's lots of people out there who really want to find out what's being said, but either weren't allowed to come or weren't able to come to London to do so. Whilst I was passing comment, cracking jokes, trying to keep people up to date, but also amuse myself to a certain extent at the same time. You were approaching it with real zeal, like you actually recorded in a way that I don't think I'm physically capable of. After the day of the hearing, I was like checking back my own Twitter feed to see what had happened because I was just like a conduit. But like you were even more so. Were you actually following it? Do you find yourself really following it or just like kind of spewing out this stuff? Most of the time I think I was managing to follow it, but there were a few days when I found myself not even just being distracted for one minute and then it being incredibly hard to get mm. back to understanding what point the, you know, the person was trying to make, not, not the, the witness, but more likely the person from the inquiry. Mm. So I think the most interesting thing for us has been seeing what sort of questions the inquiry is prepared to ask these former officers and which questions don't get asked. Yeah, And trying yeah. to sort of keep track of that was really hard at times. You, this is our second time on the podcast, before it was that mad, that we were outside the hearing the one time. In the street. Yeah, outside yeah. in the street, and I mean, the recording wasn't that great, so maybe a lot of people haven't heard it, but there was something you said on that. Uh, it, that when the undercover police were infiltrating groups, they were reporting on what was being done, but also what wasn't. And then it was just like the, with the inquiry, it's what is being asked and what isn't. Mm. Yeah. And, and we've been saying ever since this inquiry started that as the people who were spied on, we know what the questions are that need to be asked. We know what information needs to be dug out to put the pictures and the stories together. And without us getting our files, without us being the ones who actually directly ask those questions, it's very unlikely the inquiry is going to get anywhere close to the truth. And so the process we've now got with this inquiry is that rather than as co-participants, we ask the questions ourselves, or our lawyers do that on our behalf. Um, instead, we're stuck in this situation where the inquiry is insisting that only the inquiry lawyers can ask these questions, and we can just make lists of suggestions. And I know that our lawyers, on our behalf, have sat down and spent loads of time suggesting really well-crafted, well-worded questions that will actually go some way to establishing you know, what really went on. And the inquiry has just sort of cherry-picked which questions they're going to ask. They've edited the questions down, and therefore we're not getting the answers that we would have got from the original ones. We're getting some, something else. Mm. And there's not always been... I, mean, I think we have talked about this in, in previous podcasts. There hasn't always been this sort of vigorous follow-up that we would expect from a really top quality lawyer being paid at the rates the inquiry lawyers being paid at. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, lawyers with a bit more maybe experience of to, to, yeah, dealing with certain cases, I think we'd have made a better effort at actually getting answers from the, the witnesses. And uh, there were a lot of times when, you know, witnesses would be asked something, they'd say something that was blatantly not very true, and they'd just move on to the next question. Yeah. And there wasn't, there wasn't any kind of probing. 
if they lifted up that rock, they'd have to deal with what was underneath it, right? Yeah, there'd be a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, so I mean, and what, the one thing I noticed quite a lot in the, in the last lot of hearings was an insistence on the part of some of the inquiry lawyers that we could only talk about the Special Demonstration Squad. Mm. And it's like, actually, I, like, I've read the terms of reference to this inquiry. It's the Special Demonstration Squad and the National Public Order Unit and actually other associated police units doing very similar political policing. Right. And if the, this inquiry is not prepared to you know, start looking at things like the Animal Rights National Index or even the special units that were set up to deal with travellers in mm. the 1980s, what's the point? What keeps you following the inquiry and doing a blow-by-blow account of what's going on? Well, like I said at the beginning, I think it is really important that people get to hear what's going on. Mm. And if you rely just on reading the paperwork that comes out from the inquiry, if you're lucky enough to have access to it, or you, after, after it's been published on their website, have the skills to troll through their website and actually find the stuff that's relevant to you. Otherwise, it would be really hard for anyone to figure out, you know, what's coming out from this. Mm. So I think it is really vital that somebody does the sort of the live treatment we've been doing. Mm. And I'm aware that, yeah, I'm kind of lucky in that I, I've been living in London and mm. therefore it's been relatively easy for me to mm. commit to turning up and doing certain jobs, including, you know, attending hearings or going to meetings with the lawyers when they, when they happened in real mm. life. Um, but I'm also aware that I want to go and live in Scotland. And the way the inquiry is running right now, even if it is live streamed in future, it's only going to be people in England and Wales. Yeah. So yeah. you could stay at home in your nice house and listen to it all online if you wanted to. Yeah. Whereas I wouldn't have that choice. Sure. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's yeah. like the spying happened in Scotland. Yeah. With yeah. these same police officers. And for the inquiry to say, you know, firstly, they're not going to even bother looking into that stuff. Mm. And secondly, that any of us who end up living there can't participate. Mm. It's ridiculous. It is. I mean, it, like, the same for people you know live in Germany or live in Spain <laughs> or live in America or live in other countries now, having been spied on when they were living in England and Wales. They're the, saying the reason to restrict to England and Wales is that's easier because then if somebody breaches a restriction order, it's really easy for them to deal with it. Mm. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a totally ridiculous yeah. suggestion that yeah. if somebody in Scotland breached the restriction order, this inquiry would be able to deal with it. With the current legal system. It's an incredibly frustrating process. Yes. But we have learned a lot from it, right? Maybe we've learned some things we didn't want to learn. Oh, that ain't that the truth. Um, yeah, we've, I think we've learned a lot. I think there's a lot more that we're, not, we're never going to learn. Or oh, certainly we're never going to learn it through this process. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has been pointed out to me we should refer to this as the first public inquiry into undercover policing. Do you think... Oh. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> because they're not but following the Do you think reference. anyone would seriously campaign for it to be repeated? Personally, I never thought I'd be in, in a position of like, you know, arguing these, like, these pathetic details of what this supposedly liberal democracy is, is built on, these, these checks and balances. Hmm. I'm an anarchist, get me yeah. out of here, right? So, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not motivated or inspired to campaign for, like, a further inquiry because this one has failed. I never thought the, the, the inquiry itself was going to be a particularly good idea, but it was an absence of other things to do yeah. to try and hold those who are responsible for the, the crimes of undercover policing into political protest movements to account, right? Well, I listen to you now thinking, well, as somebody who comes from a you know, direct action movement background, <laughs> I, I hope we find other things to do that aren't relying on a public inquiry. And I think it would be quite hard to channel people to campaigning for another inquiry when at the same time all of us have been involved in highlighting why the public inquiry system is often seen as a total waste of time, a really expensive state cover-up, um, and you know, as a process designed to shut things down rather than really uncover the truth. 
we're not we're not talking about a truth and reconciliation process or something no. else. The way that the British public inquiry system is now running isn't really meeting the needs of the people yourself or no. I think the people from Grenfell well, would say that. As yeah, well. I mean, I think I mean, the reason is is the people they're set up for aren't the people who've been worst treated by yeah. whatever's happened. It's it, it's set up for government ministers to kick the ball in the long grass and get them off the hook. Yeah, but I'm just thinking you know, those of us who were kind of cynical enough before this inquiry started mm. will be even more cynical by the time this one fails. <laughs> yeah, something went. What, what year do you think this one's going to end? And then if another one started after that, yeah, even if it was some kind of independent panel-led dream utopian inquiry, you know, by that point, a lot of the witnesses are not going to be with us anymore. No, for real. Yeah, it's true. How did you, like, uh, you ever had any experience with public inquiries before any of this? Yes. Oh, really? Which ones? Um, to do with housing. Oh, okay. More in, in London and yeah. estate sell-offs. Very different process. I mean, is it, it's under the same Inquiries Act, though, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but, I mean, your experience with those inquiries, does this make this one look even more farcical? Mm, it's, it's hard to say. I'm, very, I'm just saying they're very different processes. And, mm. you know, that, that one was much shorter, you know, like a week of hearings rather than... <laughs> rest of your life of hearings. Yeah, there's, there's so many differences about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really hard to compare. Okay. Like, this is one of those sort of big inquiries. I think if we're going to compare this to another inquiry, then comparing it to something like Grenfell yeah. would make more sense. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. You know. And it's very, a very, very expensive process. It's not about the cost, it's about the actual issues. But, I mean, this inquiry has been very expensive, right? Well, in terms of being an anti-capitalist, then, yeah, the capital and the money involved is an interesting one. Mm. It's like, well, this this inquiry basically means that there's a bunch of money being transferred from the government to other government departments, to the police legal teams, and actually to our legal teams as well, but the amount they get is quite small. Yeah, in comparison. And it's like, you know, how much does an inquiry like this impact on our ability as activists to go and be activists because we're too busy Word. dealing with this shit instead? For real. But also, how many of the most brilliant left-wing lawyers in the country are now tied up in this process mm. as well, giving them less time to go and maybe do pro bono work for an activist who's out there being arrested doing direct action this week? Yeah, or absolutely. dealing with claims against the police for police misconduct or all the other things that those lawyers are fucking brilliant at doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm always thinking about it in those terms. It's like, well, mm. actually, if the money they're getting for their firms from this inquiry process isn't enough to actually meet their true running costs, mm. then as workers, you know, I know it's hard to think, of, you know, to sympathise with lawyers and being like, underpaid <laughs> workers, but the real, there is a real issue in London with the impact of like legal aid cuts on legal mm. services and on the ability of all these law firms to function effectively to do what they can to protect people's human rights and, you know, People who don't have money's rights, basically. Yeah, no. So I do think about that side of it. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not like I, I, when I first started taking legal action, like ten years ago, or whatever. Now, I was surprised, like the actually the the group of human rights lawyers, or like you know, good human rights lawyers, if you like, it's very small, and it's the same. It's the same ones doing our cases, doing you know, Grenfell, doing like pretty much. All if you ever hear about a human rights lawyer, it's one of a handful of people, right? Yeah. In this and the legal, I say the legal aid lawyers as well. Yeah, who yeah, do sure. like police misconduct and civil mm. cases, and you know, defending people that have been arrested unfairly or. In a it's a small pool. Way. It's a really yeah. small pool. Yeah, but like in terms of the cost of the inquiry, it's over forty million now, right? Yeah, easily. Yeah, we're I mean, not even halfway in. 
But more than anything else, I'm just impressed on how they've managed to spend the money on fuck all. It's a very small inquiry team. I mean, that is something which like certainly comes home to me when we go to hearings or whatever, is how few of the people are employed by the inquiry. Obviously, they've got some very well-paid lawyers who are doing the, the questioning. And it took a long time to sort out you know, various software issues, and a lot of people would argue they still haven't got decent systems. But, yeah. you know, searchable databases and easy-to-access ways... You know, for us as core participants or for members of the public to mm. access the documents. As I'm sure anybody who's tried to find things on the Undercover Policing Inquiry website will attest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for real. And, and, and they're arguing that, you know, a lot of the processes that they've had to go through have, have taken a lot of manual power, you know, scanning documents and all the rest of it. That people have had to be security checked and that's a lengthy process. There's been a lot of excuses that we've heard. Mm. But, you know, as we said about four years ago... You know, even if a security check takes a year to run, you know, there's lots of things that could have been improved by now. Mm. And I'm not sure they all have been. I think there's some individual inquiry staff that really have done their best to address some of the inefficiencies mm. and some of the the problems. Yeah. But ultimately, their hands are tied by the chair. Yeah. And his yeah. attitude. Yeah, his attitude, man. I mean, we could do a whole episode on Mitting's attitude, really, couldn't we? Indeed, we could. It's something that's really telling when you're actually, like, in the room... I mean, admittedly, we're watching on bloody screens. Hopefully, next time we, we go, hopefully it'll be in person and we'll be actually able to look at his face directly as opposed to watch a screen with it. But, you know, his body language during like reveals a huge amount about his attitude, not just towards the undercover officers, uh, but also towards the, the non-state, non-police witnesses. I, I still despise that phraseology. Non-state, non-police. Like, the members of the public. But anyway... You know, his carefully selected members of the public. Very carefully selected. Well, it's been interesting, yeah, this, this, seeing what witnesses have been selected mm. um, and how that's going to work in future. And, yeah, what's going to happen where we've got more cases where, like we've said, you know, witnesses have maybe got old, maybe have died, maybe mm. we see more relatives speaking on their behalf. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how the inquiry deals with that. I mean, it's interesting that um, the inquiry has, today, they refused another five people to be called participants. Oh. Um, we're recording this on the 21st of July 2021 um, of those um, five you know, a lot of them the, the, the chair hopes that they will give evidence to the inquiry or will answer questions about issues and that it is of particular interest to them but he's not going to make them co-participants and you just get this sort of like oh well if they don't never mind sort of attitude that, mm. um, that doesn't suggest there is a a strong desire to get to the truth of these matters or even to be seen to get to the truth of these matters. Damage limitation exercise is, is well, what yeah, leads do the, through. Do the bare minimum to be like, well, we've covered that, we've covered that. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on. They've announced the next, uh, the, the third and final phase of the first tranche, which will be happening next May. Mm. First tranche will have taken place over three years. Given there's six tranches, really bodes well for the rest of the process. There's a secret hearing happening in September. Originally, it was going to be a number of officers giving evidence. Now it's just the two have their evidence like mixed up on purpose, gisted together, as they love to say. In, in terms of like a process of getting to the truth, is the worst possible one you could think of. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, well, these these redactions are being done for whose benefit? Right. And you know, there were excuses we heard with the the whole process of giving people anonymity. It was all about you know these former officers' current security. For mm. example, embarrassment often. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, these two guys, whoever they are, and I'm assuming they're guys, because we're talking the seventies here. What is it about their undercover policing that would put them at risk now? You know, 
We have no idea. We have no idea, but we. But, but I'm guessing it's because they were horrible, nasty bastards who did some terrible fucking things, and people would be justifiably outraged and disgusted with them for it. I mean, that seems the most likely one. Yeah, but right? like you said, risk of embarrassment. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. like even if we're disgusted or angry or anything else emotional about what these people might have done in the past, none of us up till now have ever gone and like sought some kind of revenge or right. done anything. I mean, more than that, like, we, we know the names. We, we've known about other, under, other former undercovers, you know what I mean? They, they, they've been easy to find. I mean, Bob Lambert had a very public persona. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he, Andy Coles is there, you know, walking about, getting papped, you know, going to chat council hearings as, as a councillor in Peterborough. Yeah. Like, the idea that they're under any sort of, like, risk... It's just laughable. Yeah, and lots of them have had Facebook pages and they've been out yeah. there on social media. Yeah. So, you know, it's like they, they, they can choose to put themselves out there and at the same time use this as an excuse for, for getting privacy from the inquiry. It's, it's, it's farcical. It's at, at the same time, you know, the police know all about us and there are, I think, people out there who have got well-founded fears of, you know, police coming after them seeking revenge when they've taken actions against the police or whatever. Mm. I, mean, I, I personally found quite difficult when we were following the, the hearings so far is to kind of contextualise what they were talking about in terms of what was happening in general at that okay. time. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, society and politically. Um, so like, if you already understood <clears throat> what had been going on with the anti-apartheid movement already, it would be a lot easier to hear that evidence and understand how the police were all fit in. I'd already studied that or learned about that. It's, yeah, there's quite a lot of stuff to learn. I kind of hope that as we get into the 90s and more recently, That'll be a lot more obvious, not just to me, but to everybody. Although, I mean, there's a lot of young people out there who are in the 20s now who obviously don't have much memory of the 90s. So for them, it will be like yeah. thinking about things for the first time and me having to like learn about the context. Mm -hmm. So much of what this podcast is about and some of the activism that both of us do is trying to increase the, like, the, the understanding within the movement, not mm. the general public, but within the movement. And I think we've still got a really long way to go. Yeah, I think you're right, definitely. And you know. You know, even the work that Uncovered Research Group has done in terms of making that booklet, you know, mm. what to do if you suspect somebody's mm. undercover cult, I think that went out within certain sort of parts of movements a few years ago when it first mm. came out. But there's definitely whole groups of people out there that are politically active right now who probably haven't seen that mm. or heard about that. And mm. I think it'd be, it'd be really useful for us to go and you know, maybe make more of an effort at Outreach, right, and we don't want to increase the paranoia. We don't want to make, make, make people go like, "Oh, be wary of this and be wary of that." Yeah, um, that's exactly why I thought that booklet was a good thing. Yes, because it, it sort of nips any bad, scared mm. reactions in the bud by yeah. providing sort of sensible information right at the start. Yeah, just say that 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 uh, the, the booklet we're talking about, the pamphlet, is uh, was my friend a spy cop. Um, it's available to download as a free PDF. We'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. Brilliant. Yeah, um, um, because I feel like, I mean, maybe I was quite lucky when I got involved um, in direct action and squatting and yeah, protesting against a road being built through East London mm. that involved demolishing hundreds of houses and pulling down these trees. That was the M11 link road. Mm. I think, yeah, we were quite lucky because we sat and talked about things and one of the things we talked about was the possibility of infiltration and there were people there talking about what had happened to the Earth First movement in the US already mm. and what was already known about the FBI and what was already known about COINTELPRO based on you know a bunch of activists getting hold of those papers mm. um, and so we were quite aware even back then 
that the police in America were willing to go to these extreme stages to embed themselves mm. undercover in people's lives, including marrying people and having mm. relationships with people. So having that information in my head from when I was a teenager onwards actually, I think, helped me be more security conscious throughout all my political life. Um, and I felt like, yeah, I'm actually, I was really lucky to know that because it became obvious that not everyone had that information when yeah. this stuff came out. You know, years and years later. I read Agents of Repression, that Ward Churchill book about COINTELPRO yeah. and, and all that. Not long before Marco appeared in my life. Maybe it was just my own naivety, but I didn't see it in the terms that it actually came at me in, if you know what I mean. I didn't imagine it coming to me in those sort of, okay. that sort of sense. It's that thing of like a little bit of knowledge. Didn't think, I, I wasn't cognitively thinking about the fact that there would be somebody undercover in my life in, in, to the depth and length of time that Marco was. And I always go back to the fact that I remember huge numbers of people being like, oh, maybe they're dodgy, about all sorts of people who turn out not being dodgy, right? Well, not just, yeah, people who turn out not to be dodgy in that way, but right, dodgy right. in some other way, because we know loads of dodgy people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, but, you know, there's, there's dodgy as in being an actual paid informant mm. for the state or mm. a paid police officer. Mm. And there's also there's many other kinds of dodgy, as you know. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And some I'm, of them are okay and some of them are not okay. Yeah, 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 quite, yeah. And I mean, now I'm proud of our, you know, our movement, whatever, yeah, different movements we've been mm. part of. But like the anti roads movement, for all of its flaws and failings, it's like, yeah, we were successful in lots of ways. Mm. And actually, we're really inclusive in lots of ways. It's like, yeah, you could be a bit dodgy. You could have maybe some mental health issues. You could have a very troubled life and background. Or you could come from something very different and you could still all work together and be part of a movement together. Mm. And, you know, people were kind of accepted. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that was a positive thing for us. Yeah, no, totally. I even, think even people that maybe did act a bit weird. Yeah, and there was no sometimes, shortage of that. Sometimes them. a bit annoying and weird, not just funny and weird, but mm. actually like, actively annoying. But people would still tolerate that and actually try and help these people and involve them in things. And... I think it's testament to the humanity of the people involved that they've been able to do that and, like you say, be very successful. Which is something which I think we often lose sight of when we talk about the groups who are infiltrated. Mm. Is that like. That's why they were infiltrated. They come at us because we are strong, comrade. Yeah. Which is which is the document that Cardiff Anarchist Network uh, uh, wrote. Well, we, we wrote together after we found out Marco was an undercover cop. I still stand by every word. And I think, I think anyone listening to this, anyone who's serious about changing the world or making any kind of revolution or whatever level happen, you've got to be aware that the, the people who don't want that change to happen are going to do their best to stop you. Sometimes that would be the state and the police and all the rest of it. Sometimes it would be corporations, sometimes it would be private individuals. Mm. But you've got to be ready for that. Uh, the reason that the, the, this inquiry doesn't have a, uh, this topic generally doesn't have a higher media profile is partially because there's only a very limited number of journalists who cover it. But the reason why more journalists don't cover it isn't because it's not good copy, isn't because it's not an interesting topic. I mean, like, let's not forget the majority... Like, police corruption... It's got it all, it's got it all. Right, police corruption is one of the most popular topics for drama... You know, for me, I think like the, the police in general, like I, I, I don't think we're a positive force in society. But even within their own like, idea of what they should be, like their, their behaviour is, is fucking appalling. Well, I mean, like we're sitting on the Tulsa State right now. Mm. Um, this estate a couple of months ago was covered in posters um, after Sarah Everard disappeared, mm. right around the corner, basically. Right. Um, obviously, the police have been very anxious to sort of wash their hands of that particular police officer mm. and talk about him being, you know, a bad apple that was a rogue <laughs> officer and all the rest of it. But it's like, as a society, we should be asking ourselves, why do people join the police in the first place? What attracts people to join the police in the first place? Mm. Why did this guy join the police in the first place? Yeah, if you're a predatory, violent person, 
who like gets off on abusing women and girls, joining the police is the perfect cover. And these people have known this for a long time, and, and they do make up a large percentage of the police force. Same as violent racists. Oh, the, the, there's a, the, also the, not just the police, there's the entire private security sector. Right. There's the people that staff immigration detention and all the rest of it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's loads of work out there for people who, who like acting like that and who like being a bit brutal mm. yeah. and abusing their power. Yeah. And yeah, some of them just end up guarding a Sainsbury's, but some of them do end up joining the police. Of those people that join the police, it's interesting to see well, what subsection go on to join the armed unit, which subsection go on to join that unit, mm. and which subsection went on to spying political protesters and what were their motivations and that'll be the interesting thing that comes out I think from some of these future officers as witnesses yeah. Yeah, we I'm... can play guess what their motivation was <laughs> god that's a dark one isn't it well like, I mean, looking at the officers that we've heard evidence from so far like I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to draw any sort of generalisations yeah, I don't think you can I think no. they're very different there's yeah. a lot of diversity within them and that's yeah. going to be really interesting to see mm. you know and and the effect that hanging out 24-7 with a bunch of decent, honourable activist people had on those officers ranged from the sort of Mike Chitty effect right through. So I think that would be something we, we can look at with interest, I think. Well, like we said, we'll, we'll see what comes out in the future. But yeah. I think when it's movements that we're actually like involved in or know people that we're involved in much more closely, it'll be really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be more challenging as well, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I found it a lot easier to follow events when I knew I was. There's no way I was involved because I'd been born yet. It, it made it like kind of a lot more kind of. Oh, what's that? All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Whereas I think when it comes to things I was involved in, there might be an element of like, oh fuck. Like on a on a really sort of basic level, I remember when we found out that the what's wrong with Arnold's leaflet, which I you know. I had those leaflets out. Yeah. Right. And it was like it was. It was a famous leaflet, yeah. a famous double size. It was the most famous leaflet, right? In you know the country, and it was written by an undercover cop, at least partially. You know, I mean, millions and millions and millions of them handed out at McDonald's restaurants yeah. all over the UK and yeah. the rest of the world. Yeah, another success that we don't talk about enough. And it annoyed McDonald's so much they went and sued. Yeah, and then more leaflets got handed out. Yeah, and I mean, McDonald's became synonymous with being like the uglier face of capitalism. And yeah. Like, and exploiting its workers as well as the yeah. planet. Yeah, then, like, you know, more than that, things like the uh, Disarm Authority, Arm Your Desires poster. You mm. know, the, from I the, have that poster. Yeah, yeah, I have that poster. I mean, I, I like it would be, you, I mean, you'd be hard pressed. I know the woman in the poster. Yeah. I told her that he designed it. Right, I mean, I, I know the, yeah, like you say, designed by an undercover police officer. It's a turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I suppose I don't feel that about sort of icons like photos or posters as much as I do just about moments in history and right. moments when it felt like we were actually achieving something. Mm. And to know that that achievement was either being slightly hampered by or slightly promoted by the presence of the undercovers. Mm. Because there were times when, you know, they weren't particularly necessarily hampering what we were doing. There were times they were just taking part in it. And in some, yeah. in some ways working damn hard towards the success of it. And, yeah, we still don't know the truth about, you know, exactly how much was then reported back on and what mm. they really thought at the time. And we probably never will. Yeah. But, yeah, there was there were various events that happened that these people were deeply involved in. In fact, if they hadn't done this particular action, then that thing might not have happened. And then, that th you know, the whole chain of events might not have happened. Yeah, so there is a genre... I really like reading um, feminist science fiction books. And there's right. this like, whole genre of science fiction that's like, what if one moment of history had gone differently? Right, yeah, So what yeah. if the Nazis had won the Second World War or whatever? Sure. And yeah, there's lots of moments like that in revolutionary British history about what if the undercover cops at that point had done that or had existed or hadn't existed or that yeah. thing had gone differently, then what would have happened later? 
I think I think that's, I mean, that's that's the sort of thing I think would be really interesting to think about. Yeah. Years. I think that's a fascinating topic. And you wonder, you know, how different would Britain be if we hadn't had these these undercover cops trying to destroy these movements, our movements? Well, working hard, running around in a van, collecting tax for these movements. Mm. Yeah, so I, mean, I, think, I don't think it's one of those things we're never going to know, obviously. No, but sure. I think it's, it can be fascinating to sort of think about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, if I had time to write a novel, it would be really great. Plot <laughs> line for some kind of. You, you haven't got a, a novel in the works then? No, unlike everyone else. No. Right, yeah, no, I haven't written a book either. <laughs> but yeah, if we write our books quickly, we might get called to be witnesses. Yeah, that, we, I mean, we need to get ourselves Wikipedia pages, mate, otherwise we're not going to. Well, do you, you can. Podcast originator. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure it's that famous the thing of having a podcast. And doing this podcast, which I think is, was just you know, it's the latest in a long line of attempts at trying to get this issue like more, more publicly known. And like you know, apart from you know, like kind of going to visit people, all I've just done is said the same things I was saying anyway, but just a press record on a device yeah. before I did it. You know what I mean? Useful. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it was always there the whole time. You know. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We'll have you back very soon, I'm Great. sure. You can join the conversation on this topic by following hashtag SpyCops on social media, especially Twitter. You can find all our previous episodes, as well as all the links you'll ever need, at spycops.info. We're really grateful to the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance for their support that allowed us to buy microphones and other bits and pieces, and for our hosting. We're also really grateful to La Public Space for providing us with a free studio space to do the recordings. Other than that, we have no financial backers. If you want to support the series, you can find links to make a donation at spycops.info and on our SoundCloud page. If you'd like some stickers to advertise the series, you can find links to that at our website as well. For a little as three quid, we'll send you out as many stickers as we can on a second-class stamp. Please give us a review on whatever platform you use. Uh, it really helps for other people to find us. Thanks for listening.